Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school, you're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. My name is Gina Ray Laserva, and I am a geographer and environmental anthropologist. And the author of the book, Feasting Wild, In Search of the Last Untamed Food. I think I got into the field of environmental anthropology because I've always been very curious about how humans interact with their environments. And food, particularly wild foods, are a really interesting entry point into studying the intersections of nature and culture. When I think back to the years I spent researching this book, one of my strongest memories is eating caterpillars in a roadless village in Borneo. They were hot and burst in my mouth with this sort of watery, eggy flavor, and they reminded me so much of the caterpillars I had eaten in the forests of the Congo Basin many months before. That flavor was like a magical portal between space and time, connecting people and ecologies half a world away. It really felt like a transcendent, almost spiritual moment, and I still laugh that it was brought on by eating bugs. <laughs> Welcome back to Point of Origin. I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield, and the voice you just heard is that of Gina Ray Laserva. Gina Ray is, as she said, the author of the recently published book, Feasting Wild, in search of the last untamed food. What drew us to Gina Ray's work was her research as an environmental ecologist, geographer, and anthropologist, which got us thinking what do we mean when we say anthropology, and specifically food anthropology? We're talking to Gina Ray today because we're talking about a word that we use often, a word embedded in whetstone lexicon and ideology, but a word that we have never really defined. It is a framework that we adopted liberally and early as editors, but also as people who are curious about food. It is a generous term that at its core is about the relationship between human beings and the world. 
And while we've discussed food anthropology as a cornerstone of our work, in doing so, we recognize and acknowledge, though perhaps not enough, the problematic history of the genre. One historically comprised of white male academics who brought their biases with them into the field. After all, anthropological scholarship is tied to a university, which is an institution, and racism and discrimination is one of the central features of institutions. So what do we mean when we say anthropology and specifically food anthropology? On today's episode, we aim to answer that question with all of its complexities and hopefully shed light on a critical form of research and understanding because the story of food is the story of human beings. Gina Ray, I would love to hear from you a framework of the origins of anthropology and then for you yourself, how you have navigated all of the baggage that comes with that terrain in academia. Sure. I am an environmental anthropologist, also a geographer. There's sort of overlaps in those mm. disciplines, but both of those disciplines really started out in service to empire and to colonialism and was very much based in going out and scientifically studying people and cultures. And so as you can imagine, while that idea sounds you know, very noble, once it's within the context of empire and colonialism, it, it becomes degraded pretty quickly. So, so much of early anthropology was about going out and recording these cultures in a way that was not necessarily, that was definitely not good for, for actually capturing the cultures. You know, the earliest, in some ways, anthropological literature that I was looking at in the U.S. was French Jesuit priests. And so they weren't necessarily trained as anthropologists, but they came to the Eastern Seaboard and they were writing down about the Native American tribes there, the Wabanaki up into Canada. So they were essentially taking what was a lived culture and primarily an oral tradition and writing it down based on their own lens of what they were seeing. And obviously when you read these accounts, there's a lot of that lens being this sort of primitive, savage culture. And so how do we even trust those accounts in many ways to have any sort of truth to them when the priests came with already such a heavy burden of sort of cultural ideology with which they were viewing people? And then in you know the kind of later 19th to the empire is looking a lot in um, the Democratic Republic of Congo and the way that the Belgians used science in order to, to understand the cultures that they were coming in to basically enslave and decimate resources. So again, it was kind of under this lens that science could be this very objective practice, and yet so much of it was already had this background to what they were trying to succeed um, through the, the capture of resources. So anthropology has gone through all these different phases. There's been periods where I think it was called like the great turn in the last 20 years and anthropologists really had like a reckoning moment. Like, what are we even doing? Is this work make sense? We're always positioning the cultures we're looking at as the other. We're never looking at ourselves as a potential other. How can we even come to this from a place that is objective or useful given that we're always positioning the sort of exotic other in terms of the cultures that we're looking at. What I was particularly interested in was how humans and nature interact within culture. And so both geography and anthropology have space for looking at those relationships. And that was what I was really interested in when I started looking at wild food was how have humans impacted the environment, but also how has the environment 
impacted our own culture. And really surprised to discover that without wild food, so much of the global economy wouldn't have functioned. We probably wouldn't have had the slave trade without the abundance of wild turtles in the Caribbean that was used to feed enslaved people, both on the Middle Passage and once they were on plantations. And so you start to realize how these sort of wild foods in many ways were invisible to historical records because they were not considered part of the larger economy. They were free for the taking. But I was very, very aware going into this project of how how to be an, a, a quote-unquote anthropologist, but also insert into the narrative this sense, should you even really trust me? Like, should you trust my perceptions of as a white woman in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Am I ever capable of fully understanding this country, this culture, these people? And so really trying to bring that sense in that even our historical knowledge, there's something untrustworthy about it because of how it was written down, primarily by white colonialists, right? And a lot of that knowledge was stolen from indigenous and enslaved peoples and, and repackaged as scientific knowledge. Yeah, there's a lot in the book about what does it mean to be an anthropologist? <laughs> so, you know, I think what got me started on this book was the fact that for 99% of human history, we hunted and we gathered, and that was how we got our sustenance. And really this kind of period of civilization is so short compared to our long history of evolution and culture and existence as a species. And then really in the last probably 100 years with credible rise of industrial agriculture, most people will never eat anything that's wild. You know, that's truly kind of a free living being and then gathered from that. Seafood remains the one area that people still eat wild food more regularly in their diets. But I just was like struck by how weird that is, that for most of our history, we ate wild food. And now it's kind of reserved in some ways as a luxury item, you know, and at the same time, I was listening to all these environmentalists basically saying, there's no wild nature left. We have impacted every square inch of the planet. This idea of the wild is even false in a sense, because humans are now, whether it's through climate change or disruptions to the resource patterns, we have impacted every square inch of the natural world. How did we get to this point where wild food, which was often associated with subsistence or poverty because you couldn't afford anything else and you had to go out and catch your own dinner, had now become something that was elevated enough to be served at the best restaurant in the world and was something that you really had to have the time or the money to, to go out and, and eat. About a billion people still rely on wild foods around the world. And for those people, you know, things like roads and deforestation are really rapidly impacting our ability to source these foods. So increasingly, wild food is just not an option for the majority of people who rely on it. So I felt yeah. like wild food was really an interesting way to talk about our relationship also to wild nature at this moment of kind of extreme environmental crisis, um, extreme industrialization of our food system, you know, and the sort of disconnect. And in many ways, I think grief that we're all feeling at this moment around our food. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback 
with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Just how much diversity we've lost. So as ideas of kind of Eurocentric cuisine have spread over the earth and we started growing crops based on those ideas, we lost so much incredible crop diversity and, and wild game diversity in our diets. Species, those creatures who are, you know, 90% bacteria or whatever, we really crave that diversity and we don't realize even that we're missing it in terms of the food that we eat. So Gina Ray, this is a, a two-part question. I want to ask if you think there is any way for us to be consumers of wild food as part of an environmental mitigation strategy. And also as eaters, do you think that it's even possible in light of the policing of stolen land to ever ethically consume wild foods? Yeah, I mean, that's such an important, complicated question. So like this spring, I got so up on my stuff about ramps, you know, because everyone's posting ramps. They're a wild onion on the East Coast. I'm sure you're familiar with them. But historically, the colonists associated ramps with poverty. So the smell was actually associated with poverty. Meanwhile, many Native American tribes or indigenous peoples, they used ramps as it was very spiritually significant. And it was one of the first plants to pop up in spring. So really important to diets and nutrition. You know, there was like this list of like 30 different things that it would treat in different ways that you could use the plant. And Cherokee tribe, the Eastern Band and the Cherokee are still having problems being able to access their traditional harvesting grounds because they lie within Smoky Mountain National Park, and you're not allowed to harvest from national parks. Meanwhile, the Eastern Cherokee are saying, yo, we, we've sustainably been harvesting this stuff for thousands and thousands of years before you even got here, and now you're saying that we can't do this. And then because of the kind of desire by foodies for ramps, they're now a super expensive ingredient, and you have people going out into the forest and just ripping them up indiscriminately, not being mindful of the fact that these plants take five to seven years to grow from seed. It takes a really long time for this plant to grow. If you harvest them sustainably, you can allow the bulbs to split, kind of like other allium species like garlic and shallots, and they'll propagate that way. So I think that's a really perfect example of what you're talking about, which is that our country was founded on stolen land and wild food takes a lot of land. The beauty and the, and the problematic with wild food is that it takes more space. So you have 
less abundance, but more diversity of natural creatures. So there's sort of an, an inherent rarity built in. But I think the beauty and the hope potentially in eating wild food is that it inherently connects you to a place. And there's also this like unruliness to the vegetables. They don't come out or to the plants. They don't come out looking uniform. And capitalism very much because of its need to kind of have this smoothness and this efficiency often requires that symmetry and that fires that commodity to look the same everywhere. But what's interesting is that in this sort of late stage moment, it's actually now elevating the weirdness and the unruliness of wild foods. And so having a mushroom that looks very strange being served on your plate is actually more of a commodity, a higher uh, luxury product than sort of like the button mushroom you can get in the grocery store. So in many ways, it's like, I always think of capitalism like eating its tail, like it's gone full circle and now it's trying to commodify like the very weirdness that shouldn't fit into to capitalism. And so something that com starts out as a resistance movement, which in many ways, you know, gathering your own food could feel like to go out and like resist the system and connect to the land, that's taken in by this like beast and repackaged. And suddenly that resistance is, you know, being spread by Coca-Cola or whatever it is. You know, I've been telling people, if you want to learn to forage, go to the same place for a year, visit it through all the seasons, start to identify what plants are there, learn whose land it used to be, like have a relationship with a place. Because I think in its best and most helpful way, eating wild food is about relationship with non-human species and the non-human world that we share this planet with. I see the relationship in your foraging research akin to what a lot of indigenous folks in this country have to endure, which is the policing of their native lands for the purposes of foraging. And so even the cultural erasure that accompanies the ways in which land is policed and protected is obviously a huge detriment to, to foraging and wild foods being a, a part of our staple diet as it was not so long ago and most of history. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. 
If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Gina Ray, can you tell us a little about the notion of fertile crescent cities or agricultural cities and how that connects to your work? Um, I've been talking about this a lot in connection with the coronavirus and sort of the rise of these novel zoonotic diseases that we're seeing in the world. So people keep asking me, like, how can you advocate eating wild animals, given that that is what likely led to the coronavirus, which has, you know, paralyzed the entire world. But part of what I like to do as an anthropologist, anthropological thinking is understanding humans and non-human species within sort of like one big ecological system. And we create our own ecologies with everything that we're doing. So when you had the first agricultural cities, it was one of the first times that you had, you know, like fleas and rats and domesticated animals and grain and crops and humans all kind of living together. And as a result, you had the rise and the spread of diseases like plague and smallpox, many of which actually hitched a ride to the Americas with the colonists and then eventually decimated a large part of the indigenous American population. So if you think about those cities as being their own sort of ecological configuration, what we're seeing today is very similar. You know, I haven't been to any wet markets, but I spent a lot of time in the Democratic Republic of Congo looking at sort of the source of a lot of these wild animals and the the trade in wild meat there. You know, what we're seeing is that in these wet markets in China, you have creatures from African forests, Southeast Asian forests, and they're all stacked up together in a way that they would never normally interact out in, in wild nature, out in the forest. And then a lot of these forests are under attack from deforestation, changes in the climate. And so we're not even sourcing healthy animals to begin with. So the fact that these kinds of zoonotic diseases are on the rise is really not that surprising when you think about the idea that these new megacities with massive amounts of people, creatures from all over the world, living on top of each other, stressed out and scared, it's kind of obvious that you're gonna have the rise of new you know, viral outbreaks like this. Every action is an ecological action, whether we realize it or not. Every meal that you sit down has, you know, ecological ripples. It ripples out through the food chain, through the resource, through the ecosystem. So I think that's really important to remember that it's not just eating wild animals is bad. I mean, we've been doing that for hundreds of thousands of years without these kinds of impacts. So not, not all Congolese people eat, you know, uh, scientists call it bush meat. I think that has some racist connotations. So I tend to just call it wild meat or game meat because that's essentially what it is. You know, it's no different from a white man hunting an elk or a deer. Sure. So, you know, actually looking at that history of how it kind of got these racist connotations was really interesting. And of course it's tied up in colonialism, but for people who eat wild meat, it's often related to having ancestors who lived in the forest. And when the Belgians came, it was one of the most brutal colonial regimes in Africa, and they restricted people's ac- access to the forests. So wild meat started to have this sort of like mystique to it because it had been so much a part of the diet, and then suddenly it was restricted by the colonial government. And, you know, it kind of started to symbolize power. So it's very much wrapped up in ideas of masculinity and power. And wild game meat is very much associated with celebrations, with weddings. You know, if you have your in-laws coming and you want to impress them, you might 
serve wild game meat. I met a bunch of pregnant women in the markets and it was, it's kind of associated with health and wellness, just as we might choose organic meat or something like that. But as a result, people who are living on the edge of the forest are relying on game meat less and less and more often selling it into this large market trade for cash um, in order to support themselves. And so you can go to restaurants in Kinshasa and sit down for antelope or bush pig in a you know fancy meal. And then I did end up tracing some of the meat to Paris where there's a large Congolese diaspora and people import things like you know pangolin. And a lot of it is smoked, so it's actually quite preserved. Mm-hmm. Because of the humidity of the forest, the meat has to be smoked and then every few days kind of re-smoked. And so when you turn it into stews, it's like really incredible, just sort of falls to pieces in your mouth. So I really wanted to kind of demystify this food because there's so much, you know, environmentalists, I mean, it's, it's a problem environmentally, absolutely. It's affecting the whole ecology of the forest. Certain trees are not reproducing because the animals that would disperse the seeds have been wiped out to such an extent. And scientists call it the empty forest syndrome or the quiet forest syndrome because you've just really taken out this huge number of wildlife from the forest. But I also feel like we have to understand what is driving this trade. And it's not just, you know, something like these people are horrible or barbaric. Like there's really deep cultural roots there. Gina Ray, thank you so much. You've left us with a lot to think about, especially the ways in which anthropology, nature, and ecology are so firmly related. And also there's the notion of human beings belonging to part of a wilder, broader world, and how imperative that is when we're talking about wild food. And also there's the reality that for non-white people, we must continue to reconcile and absorb, and especially for black people to reclaim our relationship to nature, which has been altered through colonization. And our relationship with the wild fosters a, a sense of belonging, which in itself is a feeling that has been colonized. Our next guest to help us continue to contextualize and decode anthropology is Dr. Hannah Garth. Dr. Garth is a sociocultural and medical anthropologist specializing in the anthropology of food. Her work addresses issues of inequality and structural violence with regional interest in Latin America, the Caribbean, and the U.S. So I should put the caveat on it that there's a bunch of different kinds of anthropologists and there are many, many different ways that people think of the field. And so the way that I think of it might not be the way that, you know, the next anthropologist that you talk to thinks of it because it's a very broad field and people come into it from different angles. Mm-hmm. Um like you said, it is fundamentally about studying humans, but other fields are also about studying humans, right? So human biology is about studying humans, but that's quite different from anthropology. Um, to me, it's about studying humans through the lens of culture 
and through the lens of their social, political, religious, linguistic, and other relationships and ways that humans interact with one another, um, as well as how they interact with with systems like the food systems. Um, so I think, to me, studying food is not just about studying how humans consume food, but looking at how people consume food reveals things about human life. Um, and that's sort of what is fundamental to me about um, the anthropology of food as a field. I think, you know, anthropologists, some anthropologists look at this through a historical lens, right? So they take maybe more of an archeological take on it where they're um, looking at prehistoric origins of human relationships to food through consumption patterns that they find in um, the archeological record. I look at contemporary humans, right? So I study people that are alive and I have conversations with them about their everyday lives, the ways that they imagine and understand the past, but I also observe what they do on the ground in their everyday lives as well. Early on in anthropology, people didn't consider food to necessarily be an important part of culture. They thought of food as more of a just fundamental, basic biological necessity of humans, um, which it is, uh, but they did not take it as something that was related to humans culturally and socially. Um, some did. There were a few exceptional anthropologists early on that did that kind of work. We think the study of food is as essential to human existence as food itself. But only within the last few decades has food as an anthropological theory in research been advanced. Food studies illuminates human behavior. The field has long been dominated by researchers from Europe and the U.S. who brought with them their ideas and strategies into the field and in doing so, dismissing food and culinary history. Themes, people, and perspectives related to food were largely ignored as anthropologically irrelevant, consequently making food and culinary anthropology all the more essential subject to study now. Um, but I would say that the, the thing that made anthropologists start to take food more seriously was when human relations to food shifted. Um, so early on, there were some anthropologists that studied famine. So when you lack food and it becomes something you cannot take for granted, then it becomes an important object of study or inquiry. Um, so that was, in, in the early stages, it was conditions in which, basically crisis conditions. Um, and then we start to have anthropologists that are studying the role of food in, um, in the industrial revolution and in everyday life. So understanding how groups of people are able to basically shift everything about the way that they live. So shifting from being subsistence agriculturalists to being people that work and live in cities where, you know, you can't grow all of the food that you consume and you have to rely on a food system. Um, so then we start to see a rise in anthropologists that are studying the relationship between people and food and beginning to see it as 
a cultural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, and we've, there's always been anthropologists that have been interested in food for ritual purposes, right? Like we know that there are special foods for different rituals and people consume them in particular ways. Um, so that has always been important, but seeing sort of how the everyday food consumption is related to cultural and social human relations um, was something that slowly developed over time. For at least the last, for the last couple of decades, um, scholars have understood that there is enough food on the planet for everyone to eat. And the problems that we face are problems of distribution. Um, so even, even in cases where there's a famine in one place, there is still, you know, there's still enough food on a global scale to be able to feed people and not have people starve. Um, so this is something that's commonly accepted. And so I, I've been interested in thinking through how people experience those forms of inequality and how people understand that. We'll hear more from Dr. Garth later this season in a follow-up conversation that you will not want to miss. It's about her research on Cuba's socialist food system and the ways in which it differs from the complications of our own food system here in the U.S. There are some really, really incredible parts of that episode, but for today, we're keeping it focused on her anthropological and ethnographic work. I really enjoyed this episode and I'm really glad that we finally got to have this conversation. I feel like we're moving closer to the innermost thoughts of my own personal dialogue, which is really just a series of obsessive thoughts that is all about food origins, which is basically the basis for this entire media company. Sometimes I even surprise myself thinking so much about it, but I don't think I can ever stop. I love to learn about other humans by first learning about the food they eat. I believe that love is bound to empathy and empathy cannot be achieved without understanding. Understanding is easier among commonalities and food remains the only thing that we all have in common. The story of food is the story of human beings. The study of both is food anthropology and therefore food origins is my religion. Religion is full of contradictions, and so that, too, is part of this particular pursuit. Anthropologists, mostly white, have historically studied communities that they themselves are apart and separate from. The research has not always been fruitful, and the conclusions have not always been written truthfully, and certainly not without bias. But, on the other hand, anthropology as a way of engaging with the world is brilliant and the academics in the space today, like Gina Ray and like Dr. Garth, are giving us even more reason to be excited about the trajectory of food anthropology. We hold these contradictions to be self-evident, but it must be said that food has the potential to bring that feeling of belonging to, as Gina Ray would say, a wider ecology. Speaking of, I'd like to thank our guests today, Gina Ray LaServa and Hannah Garth, you can learn more about their work and their books at whetstonemagazine.com backslash podcast or on IG at whetstonemagazine. 
That's W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E Magazine. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to Point of Origin. Peace. also like to thank our incredible podcast producer Celine Glager. Celine, you are the best. To our editor and Whetstone partner and director of video, David Alexander in London. Appreciate you, Dave. Thanks to our Whetstone production intern, Quentin LeBeau. And last but not least, my business partner, Mel Shi, who makes all things at Whetstone possible. Thank you, Mel. We'd also like to thank our partners in production at iHeartRadio. To Gabrielle Collins, our supervising producer and executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis. We'll be back next week with more from the world of food worldwide. Point of Origin listeners, as you know, rating and reviewing our podcast is the very best way for more people to find out about our very important work at Whetstone. So please, if you're able, we would really appreciate a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts that will help others like yourself find out about Point of Origin. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.